Well, happy feast, brethren. I trust you've had an excellent feast, spiritually speaking, as well as physically. Welcome. It's good to have you here again today. And I have some questions for you as we begin the sermon. Are you ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ? You've been hearing about that so far this feast. Hopefully it's excited you. It's drawn you in with the messages. It's made you feel like you want to be part of the kingdom of God. And hopefully you're beginning to get a foretaste of it. Just a little sample of the awesomeness of God's kingdom of God coming very soon. Are you ready to rule with Jesus Christ for a thousand years and beyond? What responsibilities do you need to be preparing for now so that you're ready to go when Christ returns in the clouds and calls up the saints into the air to meet Him in the sky? One of our major responsibilities, brethren, in tomorrow's world will be that of judging. But is is it okay for Christians to judge? Should we be judging each other? What is our responsibility in this life in terms of judgment? Certainly we'll be judging in the world tomorrow. What is required for a Christian to make godly judgments? And how will we be judging in the millennium? Brethren, today I want to talk to you and provide hopefully some answers to these questions that we've just posed. I want to clearly define what God means about judging, what type of judging He expects from us now, and the responsibilities of judging in the kingdom. What does the word judge mean to you? Let's go over a few definitions as we get started so that we're all on the same page as we then move forward into the message. Webster's Ninth Collegiate Dictionary defines judging this way. It says, Judging means to decide, to form an opinion about through careful weighing of evidence and testing of premises, to sit in judgment on or to determine, to pronounce after inquiry and deliberation. So taking the facts that are before us and weighing them out and then making a wise judgment based on the facts that we're able to ascertain. Judging also means to form an estimate or an evaluation or to hold as an opinion. That's from Webster's Dictionary. What are some of the definitions of judging in Scripture, though? Because dictionary definitions are great, but they're not always what God intended in the Scripture. We really have to go back to the original Hebrew and the Greek to come up with some of these definitions. In the Old Testament, there are two words that are primarily used for the word judge. The first one means to judge, to plead the cause of, to strive as at the law, or to execute judgment. So basically making decisions based on information. The second in the Old Testament means to sentence against, to punish, to vindicate, to pass judgment on, to govern, or to reason. So a little bit more of an extreme Further down the line, the first word means to make a decision based on information. The second one means basically to act on that decision. In the New Testament, there are three primary words for the word judge. And we're going to use these by matters of degree. The first word is to separate thoroughly, to discriminate between, to discern, to differ or to judge. So you have two sides 
and you discriminate, you determine what's the difference between the two. The second word for judge in the New Testament means to condemn, to punish, to conclude, to decree, to judge, to call into question, to sentence, to think, or to decide. And the third is, by matter of degree, even further down, it means to condemn, condemnation, to bring to law or judgment. So we've got two words in the Old Testament, three words in the New Testament, very similar meanings, but some of these words, particularly in the New Testament, mean further down the line in terms of degree. A much more um, sound decision, a condemnation that can come. And we'll see that that's something we are not to be doing in in the life today. But as we work with Jesus Christ as members of his family in the kingdom of God, ruling as kings and priests, as joint heirs with Jesus Christ, we will likely be involved in that part of the process. Let's look at some of our responsibilities, though, in judging in the kingdom of God. We are here at the Feast of Tabernacles. God has called us here together in like mind, all of us, those who are baptized, who have God's Holy Spirit dwelling within them, those who are not baptized yet, but who God is calling. He's working with you. He's giving you an understanding of the truth of His truth and of His plan. He's called all of us now to see through a glass dimly, to get a foretaste of what the kingdom will be like. So as we think about God's kingdom, let's think about part of our responsibility then, judging along with Jesus Christ, on thrones, we're told, with crowns on our heads. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me, we'll begin by reading some of Paul and some of his comments to the church at Corinth. This is the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. And as we begin chapter 6, we need to consider and keep in mind that earlier in this letter, Paul was actually condemning the church at Corinth. They were not making correct decisions. In fact, they were choosing not to decide at all about certain matters where people were breaking God's law The um, brethren in the church knew that they were brethren breaking God's law, and they were not making decisions about it. And chapter 6 begins this way. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Why would you, Paul is asking, take a brother in the truth to a court of law in the world? and not take them before basically the ministry, asking God's people with God's Holy Spirit to make a decision in a matter. Apparently they were suing each other or something like that in the courts and not making simple judgments based on the law of God with God's Holy Spirit helping them. Verse 2, Do you not know that saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Remember, Paul is saying that in the kingdom of God, the saints, us, we, brethren, will be judging the world, will be involved in that process. We will be helping those in the world make decisions when people have issues in the kingdom of God and two people come that don't agree. They come to us as saints, rulers in the kingdom of God. They share their case before us and we help make the decision of where truth is, somewhere in between these two opinions. Paul is saying, don't you know that in the kingdom we will be doing that? So are you not worthy 
to even judge the smallest matters. Why as Christians, with God's Holy Spirit, can't you judge the smallest matters, Paul is asking. Verse 3, he says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things pertaining to this life? In the kingdom of God, brethren, we as joint heirs with Jesus Christ, as servants within the government of God, will be involved in judging, ruling over, guiding, overseeing even the angels. And Paul is saying, you know, if we're going to be doing that in the kingdom of God, what about the physical things of this life? <clears throat> so we will be involved in major decisions in the kingdom of God, brethren, ruling over the world, helping make decisions based on factual information and a few other things as we'll talk about. We'll also be involved in working with ruling over angels, spirit beings who we're told are higher than us now. We're a little lower than the angels. But in the kingdom of God as members of the family of God, spiritual members, join heirs with Jesus Christ. He will be our elder brother. We will be responsible for angels. That should be sobering. It should be humbling as well. Especially when we take a look in the mirror and realize how frail we are as human beings and how fallible we are as human beings now. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Let's get some more understanding, some more background on this whole idea of judging in the kingdom of God and what our responsibilities will be like. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. This is the vision of John. And he says, I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. John was seeing a vision not of one throne, the throne of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but of thrones. And they who sat on them were given or was committed to them judgment. We, brethren, are going to be the ones, with God's help in helping us overcome in this life, we will be the ones sitting on those thrones, making those judgments. And judgment will be committed to us. Revelation 5, verse 10 where is this judging going to take place? We'll be judging from thrones in heaven. I think you know the answer to this. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. Let's break in here. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Think about that. How many monarchs who've reigned over the centuries just sit on a throne and do nothing? We actually see that a little bit in the United Kingdom today with the queen who sits on the throne. She's really a figurehead at this time. But historically, rulers... Monarchs have not just sat on a throne. They have been involved heavily in making decisions and leading and guiding nations. They've also been involved in making judgments, something we will be doing in God's kingdom. Daniel chapter 7. 
as we begin to look at some more detail here about our responsibilities in the kingdom of God. And no doubt you've reviewed some of these scriptures so far in the feast at your respective sites. Daniel chapter 7, and we will read verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion, power, authority, rule, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to whom? To the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey Him. All dominions, all peoples of the earth shall serve and obey Jesus Christ. But the people of God, the saints will be given greatness on the earth. We will be looked to as leaders in the kingdom of God. People will look to us for the answers. They'll come to us. If they have struggles and they have difficulties and they have clashes with other people and other nations, they'll come to us to make the decisions. Are we preparing for that time? We read some of the definitions of the word judge. Judge means to decide. We will be involved in judging, deciding important matters. Psalm chapter 149. The book of Psalms. Here we read some more about the judgment that will be executed and responsibilities of judging. Psalm chapter 149. And verse 5. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Two-edged sword in the hands of the saints, us. Why? To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters and iron, to execute on them written judgment. This is the honor of of the saints. It's interesting to consider. We will be involved in making decisions, weighing out matters, making choices for people in certain situations. But as we just read, we'll also be involved in judging and executing punishment on nations. And what does it say? How does God define this punishment? How does He define the responsibility? Verse 9, we just read, He says, This is the honor. This honor have all His saints. It's an honor to do this in the name of God and Jesus Christ. To execute these judgments and punishments in some situations. Most of us who are parents and have been parents, we haven't enjoyed punishing our children, but it's something that has to happen from time to time. Correction has to take place. Correction based on the Word of God. And truly, I think most of us who are parents believe and understand and have come to know that it's an honor to raise our children, to work with them, and yes, even to correct them from time to time. God has given us the responsibility, and it truly is an honor because God is the judge. He's the ultimate judge. He's the ultimate decision maker, and He's chosen to share with you and with me that opportunity to make those decisions. It is an honor. Revelation chapter 21, one of my favorite scriptures in the entire book. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7, he who overcomes or she who overcomes, the individual who overcomes shall inherit what? 
all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son or she shall be my daughter, you could put here. They will be my children, God says. If we overcome with God's help, when we overcome with God's help, we'll inherit all things. Think about that. What does all things mean to you? Look to the sky when the sun goes down tonight. You still have almost a full moon to look at. You have stars to view. Many of you are in feast sites near the ocean. This awesome creation of the ocean that God made with tides, tides that are controlled by the moon that we see in the sky. God made all of these things. And as we inherit all things, not only will we inherit the things of the earth, but we'll inherit all things that are God's. God is a creator. God is love. God is a judge. God is merciful. We will inherit these characteristics as well. We will inherit the opportunity to judge and the ability to judge righteously, perfectly, How badly do you want to make perfect decisions every time you make a decision? Imagine, no more wrong decisions. We have an expression in the United States that we put our foot in our mouths sometimes. We say things that get us into trouble. We say things without thinking about the ramifications or the implications of what we say, and it comes back on us, makes us look bad or foolish. It embarrasses us. In God's kingdom, we won't have to worry about putting our foot in our mouth anymore because everything we say will be perfect. Every judgment we make, every decision we make will be perfect because we will be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. What a neat thing that will be. Psalm 96. Let's go back there and read what the psalmist had to say about Jesus Christ. The book of Psalms. Chapter 96, and we'll start reading in verse 13. Psalm 96, 13. For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. One of the reasons why Christ will return is because he's coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with what? With righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Righteous judgment, perfect judgment. What does Psalm 119, 172 say? Let's turn there. We're very close. Psalm 119 and verse 172. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. The righteous judgments of Christ are going to be based on the word of God, the Ten Commandments. That will be the backbone of every judgment that's made. And we're told that Christ will judge the world with righteousness based on the Ten Commandments. Brethren, as we reign on the earth as kings and priests for a thousand years and beyond, we will rule and judge peoples and nations, you and I, all of us here today. This judging that we do will include, yes, condemning from time to time, pronouncing sentence on people for situations and decisions they've made. But it will also involve making decisions and carrying out the consequences. It will be up to us to do this as saints ruling under Jesus Christ and carrying out His law. 
we will be judges in tomorrow's world. Are you excited about that? Are you excited about bringing people together, working with people, and helping them make wise decisions, perhaps for the first time in their lives, decisions that are based on this, the Word of God, the Ten Commandments, instead of ideas and thoughts and interpretations of men. Decisions that are made not because of selfishness, not because I want to get what I can get, but because God says to do it. And God also says, if you do it, I'll bless you. We've been called to be part of that time in tomorrow's world. But what about this life today? How does today relate to the world tomorrow? We are here at God's Feast of Tabernacles, but we know all we have to do is leave this room and interact with people who are not called to realize that we're not in God's kingdom yet. <clears throat> when we leave the premises of this, this facility, this building, we're reminded very quickly that we are in a world that is ruled by Satan the devil, a world that has the potential to be ruled by God and Christ and will be, but we're not there yet. What are we supposed to do today? We will be kings and priests and judges in tomorrow's world, but what about today? In this life, brethren, we're also expected to make judgments as we practice and prepare for our future roles in the family of God. God wants us to make these judgments, these decisions. We are to be practicing and preparing for this today. Let's look at a number of scriptures that demonstrate how we're to do this. Turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, <clears throat> we have comments that God made in the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments, the writing of the words on stone. This is the context of Leviticus 19. Let's read Leviticus 19 and verse 15. Let me catch up with you. I'm in Numbers, and that's not going to work. Leviticus 19 and verse 15. You, this is God's words here to Moses and ultimately the people of Israel and us. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. So we are to judge justice-wise, with justice you shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the persons of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Now think about this. We are privy to court cases that happen in our nations around the world. We perhaps have been in court cases where judgments have been executed that have been unrighteous, where the poor have been catered to because they're poor, so they get an upper hand, they get privileges that some other people may not receive. Or in more cases than not, the poor are put down and the people who are privileged are the people with money. And the people with money get off. They're not judged righteously. Maybe the court case is thrown out or it's put into their favor against the poor because the poor can't defend themselves. God says to his people and to us, don't judge this way. Don't. Put special honor on the poor, special honor on the mighty. But judge in righteousness as you judge your neighbor. This is a command. Judge with righteousness. God's not talking to spirit beings here. He's talking to people, us. And he's saying, you judge. Talking to me as well. Judge with righteousness. Our responsibility is to judge, but to do it with righteousness. 
Let's look some more at what this judging actually means. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and read a little bit further on than where we began. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll start at the beginning again. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So the indication is when you need a judgment to be made, particularly if it's a judgment to be made on an issue between two brethren or several brethren, we're not to go to the courts of the world, but we're to go to the church. Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? We should be able to judge small matters, even in this life. Verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? If we're going to judge angels in the kingdom, what about the things in this life which are not spiritual? They're physical in many cases. There are spiritual ramifications, but they're physical things. Verse 4, then, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? So Paul begins to bring up the issue here of who's doing the judging, particularly judging for the church. We're not to appoint people to do judging who are hypocrites, who have a shallow and uh, problematic track record. We're to appoint those to judge in the church who are converted, who are righteous in their actions, who are known for their wise decisions. This is why Paul, in his letters to Timothy and Titus, in giving admonition for ordaining people to offices of deacon and to elder, said, don't ordain a novice. Don't ordain a person that you don't know the character of because they're going to be put into a position where there will be judgments made by them. You want to make sure that these people know the Word of God are working with God's Holy Spirit, and they can make judgments based on the Word of God with the help of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. <clears throat> is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? Again, Paul's saying we should be able to judge between brethren. We should be able to deal with these issues in this life, particularly if we're using God's Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 12 more about judging in this life today. What did Jesus Christ have to say? Are we to judge other people? Luke chapter 12 and verse 57. Yes, and why, even yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him lest he drag you into the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid every last mite. What's Christ saying? We need to be able to make decisions, come to an agreement with another person, not go to court about it, because once the court gets involved, there are major ramifications, and people are jailed, and fines are having to be paid. When in fact, if we could just get along, if we could make these decisions together, come to conclusions together, we wouldn't have to go to this extent. So Christ is saying, back to verse 57, do you not judge what is right? Can't you judge right and wrong? Can't you make that decision? We, brethren, should be able to do that 
Certainly with God helping us, we can't do that perfectly in this life. But we're to be practicing this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians, the same letter that Paul was writing to the Corinthians, the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 15. I speak to wise men. Judge what I say. You, Paul is saying, you're wise. He's writing to the people in the church. I'm speaking to you. You're wise. You're intelligent. In theory, you've got God's Holy Spirit. Judge what I say. Determine what I say and whether it's right or wrong. Much like Mr. Meredith, when he gets on the telecast, charges his audience and says, don't believe what I say. Go to your Bible. Prove it for yourself. What he's saying is, look at the Bible, look at the facts, and make a judgment. Make a determination of whether what I say is right or wrong. Paul's saying the same thing to the church. You make a judgment. Determine what I say. Judge for yourselves. He's commissioning the church to do this, to judge, to decide. This is what judgment means. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. Another one of my favorite scriptures, although this is a bit challenging to put into place, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 11:31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we would look at ourselves, and this is in the context earlier, verse 27, 28, of self-examination. If we look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word, determine where we're falling short, and then make changes based on that, repent, move forward in the right direction. We are judging ourselves. We're making a decision. We're looking at our lives and saying, okay, this is not right. I need to do it differently. Paul is saying if we do this, we make these decisions on our own. We remove the need for God to look at our lives and condemn us in the future because we've made the changes without his help, hopefully with his influence, but without his direct intervention. This is a blessing when we think about it. God is saying to us, I really don't want to judge you. I'm going to let you do it yourself. And if you do a good enough job, you're going to take the responsibility away from me. And how many of us would rather take this on ourselves, judge ourselves, make the changes now so that we don't have to come before the judgment seat of Christ in the great white throne judgment only to possibly be condemned? We can judge ourselves now. And Paul is saying we must do that if we would judge ourselves, if we would just sit down, make those decisions, Look at ourselves honestly and change. We, we won't have to be judged by God in the kingdom. An exciting thing to think about. Brethren, hopefully we see that we are to make judgments in this life. Judgments are decisions based on information. Hopefully based on the commandments as well. Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul both gave the command to judge over and over they told us to make decisions, draw a conclusion based on information, to think about what we've heard and what we know and to make a sentence or choose a course of action. This is what they're saying. This is what that judgment means. Now we're going to look at a scripture that many are confused about, many take out of context. But given what we've just reviewed, let's look at this apparent difficult scripture and hopefully it will make a lot more sense. We need to remember, too, that the Bible does not contradict itself. So hopefully we've made a, a clear case for the fact that we are to be judging in this life. We are to be looking and making decisions based on information. Matthew chapter 7. 
is a scripture that many today get wrong. Not many of us in the church, but I think we can probably relate to many individuals getting this wrong. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. How many of you have known individuals who say, stop judging me, don't judge me. I don't like that person because they judge me. They're judgmental. What are they really saying? Maybe you've used these terms in the past. What are we saying when we say, don't judge me? In many cases, what we're saying is, don't point out that what I'm doing is wrong. I don't want to hear that what I'm doing is wrong. What we're saying is we're not teachable. We're not willing to hear our mistakes and change. Let's read down further, though, with this. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. What's being said here? We will be judged as we judge others. Now, Matthew 7, verse 1 says, Don't judge that you be not judged. Yet we are told multiply, multiple times in Scripture that we are to judge. Is God contradicting himself here? This is actually Christ's words. What does he mean? Obviously, we are to make decisions. This is not saying don't make a decision based on information that you that decisions aren't made on you. This is what it's meaning here. This means don't condemn other people. This word um, for judge in the Greek means to condemn. Don't condemn other people so you're not in turn condemned. Because if we do condemn others, we'll be condemned just like that. If we judge falsely or unrighteously, we will be judged in that same way. Let's read down to verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not consider the plank in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me move the speck out of your eye? And look, a plank, a big board, a log is in your own eye. Hypocrites, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So what we're told is we need to judge righteously and not be hypocrites. If we have problems in our lives that other people can see that are right in front of them, we're told don't judge other people on teeny tiny issues when we've got big issues. Deal with your problems, with your sins first. Get them out of the way. Overcome them with God's help. And then we'll be in much better shape to help other people overcome their own problems. Ultimately, though, that scripture in Matthew 7, verse 1, gets at condemnation. Ask yourself the question, judge not that you be not judged. Are we not to make decisions? Are we not to be able to look at someone and say, that person's living a righteous way of life. They are such a good example. They're following God's way. I want to be able to be like them. That's a decision. That's a judgment. The flip side of it is, that person really is not following God's way of life. They're committing all kinds of sins. I don't want to be like them. And in fact, I probably shouldn't spend a lot of time around them. Is that the kind of judgment God is saying don't do? No, I think we know that. As we go through Scripture, time and time again, we're admonished. Follow righteous people. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. To determine whether Paul imitated Christ, the church had to make a judgment. Conversely, we're told over and over in Scripture, don't spend time with people who are deceivers, who divide the congregation. 
because you'll begin to develop those characteristics as well. To make, to, to make that determination that people are dividing the congregation, they're deceiving people, we've got to look at the facts and make a judgment call. We are to do this, but we should do it without condemning the person. We cannot say, for example, this person is sinning, therefore they're going to burn in the lake of fire. Therefore, God is going to punish them. The principles are there, but we can't make the judgment. We can't say, God will punish you. God has to say, I will punish you. What we can do, though, is we can learn from the situation. We can say, this person is sinning. They're making mistakes. And I don't want to do those same mistakes. God, please help me. My father taught my brother and I some of these principles of judgment when we were younger. We had a young boy in the neighborhood. He was uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And he couldn't control his temper. He was very disobedient. He never respected the people in authority over him. His parents actually let him stay out into the late, late hours at the night, wee hours of the morning, um, without any supervision. And I remember my dad sitting my brother and I down and saying, I really don't want you to spend a lot of time with that young man. He's a troublemaker. He's, he's probably a good kid, but his parents haven't guided him and taught him. But he causes trouble. Trouble follows him around, and if you follow him around, you'll get in trouble too. And I don't remember who it was. It was myself or my brother. We said, Dad, how can you say that about him? That's not nice. And my dad just said, watch. We have to look at the information. We have to look at what we see. We have to look at how he acts and determine, is he acting like God would have him act or not? And if he's not, we need to stay away from him. But watch him, my father told us, because as he gets older, he's going to get into more and more trouble. And you're going to be thankful you didn't follow him. And sure enough, dad's advice paid off as it usually did. We didn't listen or we didn't follow this young man. We watched and he ended up getting in major trouble. I think he did some jail time later on in his life as well. But my father was teaching us to look at the situation and to make judgments. Is this right? Is this wrong? Are we going to follow this? Or are we not going to follow this example? And that's what we have to do as Christians. We don't condemn the people. My dad actually never condemned this young man. He never said terrible things about him. He never said terrible things about his parents. All he said was, look at the fruits. Look at what's going on. And make a decision on the path you're going to take, whether you're going to follow him or not, based on those fruits. Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at another example here. Matthew chapter 18. As we talk about and think about judging in this life, we have an excellent, excellent example of Jesus Christ once again in his teachings. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, brethren, if your brother sins against you, ignore it. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If your brother or your sister sins against you, it offends you. We should be able to, number one, identify, decide whether they've sinned against us and offended us. That's a decision. That's a judgment. And then we are to go to them and talk with them about the situation. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, verse 18, take with you one or two, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. 
And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Decisions have to be made. Ultimately, though, God is saying, if someone hurts you, they do something against you, go to them, talk about it, let them know, hopefully in a loving way. It doesn't say go to them and chew them out, condemn them, and tell them they're going to burn in the lake of fire unless they repent. We are not to condemn other people. But we are to make judgments and determinations. So, what do we know so far from the sermon? We will be judges exercising godly wisdom and judgment in tomorrow's world. We also, brethren, are to be practicing judgment today. But the question remains, what do we do to judge properly in a godly way? What do we need to be practicing today and implementing in tomorrow's world so that we judge in a godly manner? I've got a couple of points for you in doing this. Things to think about as we practice judging in this life. Point number one is we need to judge with mercy. We need to judge with mercy. Let's look back at the example of Jonah. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. And we will see a situation where a prophet of God made some judgments based on judgments of God. We see Jonah's attitude in these judgments. We also see God's attitude through these judgments. Jonah chapter 3. And we'll start reading in verse 10. And just as an aside, context here, remember... Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and prophesy against them and tell them to repent. What was Jonah's choice? He took a slow boat in the opposite direction. He was running away from what God wanted him to do. After being enlightened, spending three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jonah came to realize and understand, you know, I need to listen to God. I need to follow his guidance. I need to go do what he asked me to do. So he headed on to Nineveh and he preached to the Ninevites, to change, to repent, because God was going to condemn them. He was going to destroy and wipe out this capital of the Assyrian Empire at that time. What happened? We're told the people fasted. They put on sackcloth. Even the animals fasted for a period of time. And what did God do? Let's read verse 10 of Jonah 3. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. They were going in this direction. They turned from their evil way and went the other way. What did they do? That's the definition for repentance. They repented of what they had done. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. God said, I'm going to destroy you for what you've done. They changed. And God changed the outcome. God did not have a zero-tolerance policy that we see in many governments and situations around the world, where if you do this, this is going to happen. It doesn't matter. Um, in many U.S. schools, schools have zero-tolerance policies with weapons. You bring a weapon into the school, whether it's a gun, whether it's a bow and arrow, whether it's a knife, and you're expelled from school. 
I remember one particular situation where a little girl brought in a butter knife to school. It was in her lunchbox. Her mom actually packed it for her so she could spread her peanut butter on her bread at lunchtime. The principal found out that she had a butter knife and the girl was expelled from school. Zero tolerance policy. She broke the policy. She brought a weapon to school. Obviously, it was for the peanut butter, not for people. She was, I believe, eight or nine years old. And they expelled her from school. God doesn't act this way. God looks at the situation. He looked at this case at the Ninevites, realized they really were changing and changed the outcome. But what happened? Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. He was mad. Why? Because God changed the outcome. Remember, Jonah was an Israelite. The Israelites had been besieged and treated very, very badly by the Assyrian Empire. Jonah was excited that God's finally going to wipe out the Assyrians here. It's a good thing in Jonah's eyes. And God changed his mind. And Jonah's disappointed. God, you're not going to wipe these people out. They deserve every bit of punishment you're going to pour out on them. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Think about this. Jonah's saying, you know, back when I was in my own country, I jumped on the boat to Tarshish because I knew that if I went and preached to these people, even though it's a remote chance, they might change. And you being a merciful God might actually not destroy them. So I went the other way. What was Jonah thinking? He was very likely thinking, if I go the other way and I don't preach to these Ninevites, God's going to destroy them. If I go to Nineveh, he might not destroy them. Jonah wanted them destroyed, so he ran away, hoping that God's destruction would come because the message wouldn't be preached. Verse 3, Now therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city, sat on the east side. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it till he might see what would become of the city. And God, verse 6, prepared a plant. He made it come up over Jonah that it might shade him in his head to deliver him from his misery. It was hot, very, very hot in the desert here. So God just protected him. He gave him this plant. He was gracious, even though Jonah was in quite a bad attitude. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. He rejoiced. He had great joy for this plant in the shade. Verse 7, But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it damaged the plant, and, wi and the plant withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. This hot desert wind was blowing on him, wearing him out. Probably a wind that could have killed him if he was left out in it for long enough. The sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, verse 9, Note this, brethren. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. This plant died. I may as well die. Jonah's angry about the plant dying. 
one plant. It doesn't have feelings. You can take an axe and cut down a tree, and the tree doesn't yell out, Ouch! It doesn't have feelings like that. God didn't make it that way. It's just a plant. This is the point that God's trying to make. But the Lord said, verse 10, You had pity on a plant for which you have not labored or made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. You were so worried about this plant that you had nothing to do with. It just popped up like a weed and then it died. And you are so concerned about that. Verse 11, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Think about that. Jonah is worried about the plant. He's ready for God to destroy the people. And God's saying, look, you're more concerned about the plant than you are for the people. 120,000 who do not know their right hand from their left. Two different thoughts about this in the commentaries, both of which could be correct, or either of which could be correct. One is that there's 120,000 people who just didn't know the way of God. They didn't know their right hand from their left, spiritually speaking. That's a lot of people. We are told that it was a three days journey across Nineveh. The archaeologists have speculated this was a massive city. Some commentaries suggest there could have been 125,000 children, excuse me, 120,000 children, not old enough to know their right from their left hand, which means there were a whole lot more people. Regardless, God's saying, you want to kill these people, people made in my image, and you don't care about them, but you're more concerned about the plant. And there's livestock. I made that too. They're guiltless. They didn't sin. They're cows, they're sheep, they're oxen. And you want to destroy them and you're more concerned about a plant? God was teaching Jonah a lesson and teaching us a lesson in mercy. God changed his mind when he saw a repentant attitude. We, as judges today and in tomorrow's world, need to be developing this kind of godly mercy. Let's look at another example. John chapter 8. Here's Jesus Christ. Now remember, as you turn to John chapter 8, Jesus Christ in the New Testament was the one who was the God of the Old Testament, the eternal, the ever-living one, Yahweh. He was the one who gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. He was the one who outlined the statutes and the judgments. And do you know... Or do you recall that one of the statutes he set out was that a woman or a man caught in the act of adultery should be taken outside the city and stoned? That's what should be done. It's a terrible, terrible thing. They could be taken out and they could be killed for committing adultery or fornication. And this is the context that this particular passage of Scripture sets out in. John chapter 8 and verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they'd set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Who caught her in the act of adultery? 
What were they doing? Were they setting up a situation to catch her? How long did the person catching her watch the situation? There's sin going on all over the place here. But they caught her in the very act of adultery. And now look what they're quoting. Verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Who commanded? Was it Moses? Or was it God commanding Moses? It was the one who later became Christ who gave the command. They're telling Christ what Christ inspired to be written. Verse 6, But this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and he started writing in the ground with his finger. Didn't say anything, just began writing. Quietly. So, when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin, let him cast the stone first. If you don't have sin, go ahead, pick that rock up and throw it. Any of you who's without sin, I welcome you, pick up the stone and cast it. If you're without sin, you're righteous, go for it. And verse 8, he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. What was he writing? We're not told. But those who heard it, heard his comment about being without sin, watching what he's writing, probably reading what he's writing on the ground, being convicted in their consciences, went out one by one from the oldest until the last. They didn't have the courage to pick up a stone and throw it. Why? We don't know exactly. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. They knew where this woman did her job. Maybe some of them or all of them had been with her. Maybe Christ was writing down dates and times and names. John, September 15th, whatever the year was. Peter, This date, not Peter the Apostle, but Peter is a common name. We don't know. But whatever he wrote, combined with what he said, if you don't have sin, pick up a stone, convicted them so much to their conscience that they left and they couldn't stone this woman. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw that no one but the woman was there, he said to her, woman, where are those who accuse you? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Think about this. This is Christ, the word of the Old Testament, the one who gave the command to stone those caught in the act of adultery. If anyone could have stoned this woman, Christ could have. He was without sin. He could have said, go stand over there. I'm going to stone you. I wrote the law in the first place and I don't have sin. I have a right to kill you. And what did he do? He said, go and sin no more. I do not condemn you ultimately to death. Mercy. He had the ability to understand this woman and apparently read her heart and discern that she wouldn't be doing this anymore. He admonished her, encouraged her, don't do this anymore. Don't sin. Just go. Mercy. She didn't deserve it according to his law and he granted it to her anyway. 
incredible mercy. I won't read the situation, but I'll paraphrase it. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 through 28. Wise King Solomon was brought these two women. One of them, they both actually were prostitutes. They had children born through the act of prostitution. One of these women rolled over in the middle of the night and suffocated her child. And while the other woman slept, I guess they were roommates, she went and took the other woman's baby and put her dead baby under her. Must have been within a day or two of the birth because they, she, this woman who took the other baby didn't think that the other woman would notice, apparently. So they went before King Solomon. They told their case. What was Solomon's judgment in this situation? He was the king. He was the judge of Israel. He knew the law. The law said, what do you do with a prostitute? Someone who commits fornication or adultery? We just talked about it. You stone them. You take them out of the city and you stone them. He could have said, Solomon could have decreed here, take both of these women out of the city and stone them. Take the live baby and give it to the family of the woman. He didn't do that, did he? He said, you know what? Using wisdom, let's just cut the baby in half and we'll give the top half to one woman and the bottom half to the other. The woman whose child it really was said, no, don't cut that baby in half. Give it to her. Let the baby live. The woman who had lied said, sure, go ahead and cut it in half. It didn't matter. It wasn't her child. Solomon was able to determine the true mother is the one who wanted the child spared. The end result was she got her child and her life. Solomon spared her life, and he didn't have to do it. Another incredible example of mercy. James chapter 2. As we think about mercy, we have to judge with mercy, brethren, in this life and certainly in the kingdom of God. James chapter 2. And verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we judge without mercy, we will have the same experience. We will be judged without mercy. Flip side of that, if we judge people with mercy, God will give us mercy. He will be merciful to us. Matthew 5, verse 7, you probably know it. Blessed are the merciful for what? They shall obtain mercy. God wants us, brethren, to be merciful to each other. He wants us to have merciful judgment. He wants us to look at the scope of a situation and make a decision, a judgment, based on, yes, the facts, but also to know the people, to try and understand their hearts and where they're coming from and to make a decision based on mercy, being willing to bend a little bit. Jesus Christ himself gave the example that we're not to condemn someone if they have a change of heart. We, learning to be judges, have to be able to see that. And with God's help, with the influence of his Holy Spirit, we can come to see that. Point number two, brethren, we need to judge with righteous judgment. We need to judge with righteous judgment. <laughs> we had a court case when we lived in um, Alabama, one of the southern states in the United States, where an appeals court forced a federal judge 
to remove a plaque of the Ten Commandments from a courthouse. This plaque of the law was against the law in a courthouse. Righteousness? Righteous judgment? No. You know, in the United States judicial system and in many nations around the world, it's not unusual for a criminal, a a convicted criminal, a criminal who is admitted to being a criminal, to be let go because of technicalities. Maybe a lawyer makes a small little mistake. The criminal could even have admitted to a crime, could, could have admitted to a murder or major theft or rape or something else. And the criminal is let go because a lawyer forgot to file a brief in the right order. This is not righteous judgment. Another situation. Many criminals who've committed murder are sentenced around the world to life in prison. In fact, it's interesting because the United States, among a very few countries, still has the death penalty in some of the states. And the United States, as many of you know, are seen as barbarians because they actually inflict the death penalty. They don't just allow people to be in prison for the rest of their lives because being in prison for the rest of your life is a humane thing, right? Is it more humane to put a person in prison for 20, 30, 40 years, to let their mind become more and more and more scarred against people and against God, to have them experience solitary confinement, not seeing or hearing a person for years on end, to experience being beaten up on a daily basis, raped, robbed within prison, and everyone turns their backs? Is this humane? What was God's command? Someone who does a terrible sin like this, they're to be executed, killed, put out of their misery, not to extend that misery for 20, 30, 40 years. What's the mercy in God's way? Because the next second of their consciousness, they will be raised in the white throne judgment. For the first time in their life, their minds will be open to the truth of God. They will understand the truth. And we, as judges in the kingdom, will sit down with them, teach them about the problems they had, tell them how we can help heal their minds, Help them walk on the straight and narrow path and ultimately, hopefully, enter the kingdom of God as more family members of the spiritual God family. God's way is merciful. God said, if they're messed up, if their brains are messed up, let's stop their life and we'll continue it in the kingdom with the truth and with a one-to-one relationship with a spiritual member of the family of God. God's way is not to put people away in prison, to suffer and to agonize for years until they die, this pointless life in prison. That's Satan's way. It sort of mimics the whole false idea of hell, doesn't it? You burn in hell everlasting. You're tortured. You're in pain. You're burning and writhing in in fire forever. Hell on earth for many criminals is a death, excuse me, is a, a life sentence in prison. It would be much more merciful to just take their life and let God start over with them in the kingdom as he intended to do. Isaiah chapter 11. Let's look at a couple of scriptures briefly on righteous judgment. We are to be practicing and learning righteous judgment today, brethren, so that we can implement it today, practice it today, and ultimately in the kingdom of God, 
have perfect righteous judgment at that time. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the make of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Our ears and our eyes can be deceiving if that's all we tune into when we make decisions, when we judge. We have to judge with righteousness. We have to use this, God's Word, the Ten Commandments, as the backbone of any decision we make. And we have to pray to God to inspire us to make the wise decision with His Holy Spirit that He's either put in us or given us access to. John chapter 7, a similar scripture here, reminding us that we have to be careful of what we see because looks can be deceiving. John chapter 7 and verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Don't base everything you judge on appearance. We read a scripture earlier about be careful how you judge the poor versus the wealthy. Because one may appear more righteous than another. They may appear more perfect. We have to be careful as we judge. John chapter 8. Turn over a page or so. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh, Christ said. I judge no one. We are not to judge according to our desires. Judges today make judgments in many cases. So that... A favor can be returned to them one day. Oh, I'll do you a favor this time. I'll make a judgment in this way. Just don't forget it because I'm going to call that favor one of these days. Second <clears throat> Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4. Paul reminds the minister Timothy here about judging. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, one of his titles, God is the righteous judge, will give me on the day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. God is the righteous judge, brethren. We, you and I, are called to inherit all things. Will we also inherit his title of righteous judge? We are to be working to be righteous judges today so that when Christ returns, we can truly judge righteously tomorrow. 1 Samuel chapter 16. <clears throat> 1 Samuel in chapter 16, and we'll start reading in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. This is talking about um, the ordination of David to be a future king of Israel. Don't look at what he looks like because I have refused him. This is actually one of David's brothers who was big in stature, strong, tall, handsome. And Samuel was just being told by God, don't look at these features. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
Think about this, brethren. We, you and I, will inherit all things at the return of Christ. One of the abilities that Christ has, that God the Father has, that we cannot have in this life, is the ability to look into the heart and the mind of a human being. We have to make judgments based on what we see and what we hear. We have to rely on God to help us because we can't see the heart. In God's kingdom, brethren, as we are members of the God family, we will be able to look at human beings and see the motivation behind comments. We'll be able to hear the stories that are told and to make heads and tails of it, to see the truth. We'll be able to look deep inside with each of the individuals that we judge to see their heart and to make a perfect judgment every single time. Words won't get in the way. Deceptive actions won't get in the way. Some people aren't real articulate. They have a difficult time expressing how they really feel. But we will be able to know how they feel. To judge with mercy every time. To make a righteous judgment every time. Brethren, I ask you again, are you ready to reign with Jesus Christ? Are you ready to judge with Jesus Christ? God is preparing us to rule and reign over the world. He's preparing us now. And one day soon, as the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled, as the millennium begins, we will have the honor, we are told, of judging with Jesus Christ. Judging will be a major responsibility in tomorrow's world, in the kingdom, yes. And today we're being given the opportunity to learn how to judge in a godly manner. God expects us to exercise and to practice judgment in this life today. Our challenge, though, is to work to make sure our judgments are both righteous and merciful. We need to learn to judge, brethren, and we need to practice judging others as we want God to judge us. Whenever we realize that we have to make a judgment, we must work hard to ask God to work with us and through us to make that godly judgment. Brethren, let's reflect and ask ourselves the proverbial question as we judge. What would Jesus Christ do if he were in this situation? How would he judge? Learning to judge righteously and with mercy takes practice. It takes being very close to God so that he can act through us with his Holy Spirit. It takes burying that human nature, the desire to want to do this or to get even, and using God's wisdom and God's spirit to see through situations. As we reflect, brethren, on our futures, our roles and our opportunities in the kingdom of God, let's look at our responsibilities today as well. We are preparing for the kingdom of God. Let's learn to use God's spirit to guide us into merciful, righteous judgment so that when God's kingdom finally arrives, he can rely heavily on our help as we begin to work with, re-educate, and judge the nations of the earth. Let's learn to judge and to practice now, brethren, in a godly manner, so that we are ready when Jesus Christ returns. And when the kingdom of God that we practice today here at the Feast of Tabernacles is finally ushered in fully with the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ.